Here goes. I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes in the intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. Didn't do it. Lawyer fucked me. You're the greatest lawyer in the world. Ooh, how can we ever thank you? I've been telling you your whole life. Don't talk on the fucking phone, right? Oh, no, I can't answer any more questions until I have a parent of lawyer present. You ain't talking to this guy. I want a lawyer. Is there a lawyer in the house? Breaking news! The Minnesota State Fair minutes ago has announced that the State Fair will be canceled this summer. As if 2020 couldn't get any worse. With that being said, welcome to another episode of the Right to Counsel podcast. I am your host, criminal defense attorney Kirk Anderson. I apologize that we missed last week's episode, but I was having some technical issues that have hopefully been resolved. I think the uh, audio quality going forward should be much better. Since we last spoke, Governor Waltz here in Minnesota decided to lift the stay-at-home order last week. Essentially, as of uh, this past Monday, gave businesses the ability to reopen with some restrictions, uh, capacity limitations, social distancing, etc. Some stores have decided not to open at all. Some stores have opened and are imposing even more restrictions, like requiring face masks of uh, consumers. That issue has led to all sorts of other problems, like constitutional scholars protesting these face masks in very angry and aggressive ways towards employees, some even resorting to violence. But that is a whole different issue, and I'm not going to get into that uh, today. Uh, Governor Waltz, when he lifted the stay-at-home order, told restaurants, bars, gyms, salons, youth sports, churches, that they're going to have to wait just a little bit longer. But he offered a glimmer of hope. He kind of made a hint that towards June 1st that there was going to be Uh, allowed more reopening, and then as of May 20th, he would give some guidance as to how to get those things done. Uh, A lot of people after that announcement were expecting pretty much everything to partially reopen as of June 1st. I saw a lot of restaurants and and breweries on social media advertising that they were going to be planning to open on June 1st. I think uh, everyone was kind of expecting that. I saw gyms advertising, salons uh, open as of June 1st, etc., Well, so the other day, uh, to much surprise, Governor Waltz announced no gyms will be able to reopen, no churches will be able to reopen, youth sports can start to practice, but there cannot be any games, salons can reopen, but at only 25% capacity, and there's several other restrictions such as face masks and gloves. And last but not least, bars and restaurants are allowed to reopen, but only for outdoor or patio seating. And assuming your bar or restaurant has outdoor seating, only 50 people at a time can be there, and they must have had reservations in order to uh, be sat. Now, I've been on governor's side pretty much this whole time. I think he has done a pretty good job through this pandemic overall, Not 100% great, but I think this is where he has finally majorly messed up. He keeps talking about slowly turning the dial, but this latest development, he barely turned the dial at all. If he was going to reopen patios with limited seating capacity, he could have done this weeks ago. 
He could have said last week, we're allowing outdoor seating when the stay-at-home order was lifted, and we're going to give more guidance towards hopefully indoor seating as of June 1st. He didn't do that either. He could have announced that we're going to open outdoor seating immediately, and then indoor seating will be allowed as of June 1st with more guidance to come. Nope, he didn't do that either. Instead, we're only getting outdoor seating for an indefinite period of time. This raises a whole host of other issues. First, what if you don't have a patio or outdoor seating? This is great if you're Lord Fletcher's on Lake Minnetonka or Cove in Wyzetta, but what if you're a small town bar that doesn't have any tables outside? You're pretty much screwed. What if you're a restaurant that has very limited outdoor seating? Will you even want to open at all? Will it be worth it? What if it rains? Are you forced to close? Or you can't even open for the day? What are your workers supposed to do that were scheduled to come into work that day? And say you're open and guests are outside and it starts raining or there's severe weather. Can they come inside for shelter? I don't know. These are questions are logical that if you think one or two steps down the line, you've got to be looking at this. I think they need to start looking, thinking more long term, not just short term. I think there's lots of ways the governor could have gone here, but what he did was really one of the worst options. He should have done what I think most people expected was he was going to allow these things to reopen, but with guidelines. For example, only 50% capacity, social distancing, patrons must sanitize their hands, workers wear face masks, etc. I mean, and then he could have left additional restrictions to local municipalities or to businesses itself. For example, the city of Minneapolis yesterday announced if you're inside, you have to wear a face mask. I mean, uh, St. Paul could do the same thing. Uh, Any place could do that. They could say, look, if you're going to be indoors, you have to wear a face mask. A private business could do the exact same thing. A church could do the exact same thing. They have the ability to require people to wear face masks. You know, I think that there's a lot of arguments over where these restrictions have been. And two months ago, it was a little bit more justified. But we've had two months to figure this stuff out and get used to it. And I think most Americans, most people in Minnesota are going to be taking precautions, taking the proper precautions, because they not only want to be safe for themselves, but they also want to be safe for other people to allow things to reopen. And I think the one other issue or one of the big issues is that simply one size does not fit all. I I don't, this whole time, I don't think it's fair to treat people in urban areas the same as in rural areas. It's, they're different situations. If you live in, say, New York City or New York State, why should you or why should someone in Montana or North Dakota have to follow the similar types of rules? I mean, I think that's one one thing that I'll give President Trump some credit for on this is that he didn't do a nationwide stay at home order, whether he had the ability to do that or not. I don't know. But he didn't do that. And he kind of left it a little bit more up to the governor saying you need to you know, you guys need to figure it out for your your specific situation. And I think that the same should be true in each state that. Local municipalities, local governments, counties need to, t- to step up a little bit more and tell the governor, look, we have a different set of circumstances than happened in, say, Minneapolis and St. Paul or Hennepin County and Ramsey County, and we can, we can handle this in a different manner. And I think once that happens, once we start treating people a little bit more fairly because people are in different situations, we can open a, a lot better. I, I think it's weird 
that someone up in Roseau or Montevideo, pretty sparsely populated areas, have to follow now the same rules that people that live in, say, Minneapolis or St. Paul or the Twin Cities area do. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so, you know, I, I really think that the governor needs to think about this and, and, and seriously take a, a second approach because for the first time, you know, there's been rumblings about displeasure and whatnot, but, but this, is the, this is the first time that there's a big undercurrents of protests from people in Minnesota. And, um, you know, and I think the church issue is going to be even bigger now. Because the churches can't open and they've got a separation of church and state issue. And a lot of people, a lot of church leaders came out this week saying, we're just going to defy the order. We don't care. We're going to reopen with with seating capacity. And uh, that might set up a fight. But frankly, there's a separation between church and state. And I, I frankly don't think the governor has the ability to really tell churches what they can and can't do. It's it's uh, It's been a little bit voluntary and cooperative to this point. Um, and, uh, I think if he would have just said, look, churches are all allowed to reopen at capacity of whether it's a, a quarter or a third or half or whatever that number is, I, I think they probably would voluntarily follow up. But the fact that he ordered this and said, nope, no reopening at all. Now he's going to get backlash for that. And I, I think that the governor really, truly needs to rethink this and he needs to rethink it fast. Now, on the other hand, there are plenty of people out there not willing to comply with anything at all. Some people are really fucking stupid. Did you ever notice that? How many really stupid people you run into during the day? God damn, there's a lot of stupid bastards walking around. For example, these are the people, It's my constitutional right not to wear a face mask. First, there's nothing in the Constitution about face masks. But if a private business requires you to wear a mask for you to come in, you have to follow it or you don't come in. If you want to sit in your house and not wear a face mask, that's fine. If you want to walk around outside without a face mask, that's fine. But if you want to go into a restaurant or private business or wherever and they tell you you have to wear a face mask and you don't want to, you're not coming in. Too damn bad. If you want to try to sue Costco over their policy, go ahead, see where that goes. If you want to ask them for your uh, membership feedback because you can't go into Costco and you're going to refuse to wear your face mask, I'm sure they'll be willing to give you your 100 bucks back. But you've got to think of it this way. Have you ever heard of the phrase, no shirt, no shoes, no service? Exactly. A face mask is the exact same thing. A private business has the right to refuse service to you for any reason so long as it's not discriminatory, like race, age, gender, sexual preference, blah, blah, blah. So if you're one of these people that refuse to comply with any safety measures whatsoever, then you don't get to use public services, public restaurants, whatever. A very small amount of stupid people can ruin it for everyone, but in this case, we cannot let that happen. The vast majority of people are taking care of themselves. The majority of these businesses have the ability to protect people and to protect their business, and I think that the governor needs to give them the right the ability to do that. Again, the majority of the state believes Governor Waltz has, has been doing a good job through this crisis, and I think he overall has been doing that too, but he seriously needs to reconsider this decision right away. If he doesn't, the recall Waltz or impeach Walt mobs, impeach Waltz mobs are only going to get louder and louder and get bigger and bigger as the, as the days go on. So please, if you're listening, Governor Waltz, please reconsider your decision right away. 
allow more businesses the freedom to reopen. And I think that this will work out in the long run for, for everyone. All right, enough with all of that. In actual legal news, earlier this week, Governor Walt signed legislation uh, requiring law enforcement to adopt statewide best practices for lineup procedures. The new bill is aimed at uh, protecting against witness misidentifications, which is the leading cause of DNA-based exonerations in the United States. Uh, essentially, what that means is that an, in, an individual was charged and convicted in large part based on eyewitness testimony. Um, and then later on, that individual was convicted, many times went to prison, and then was exonerated by DNA evidence later on. Um, so joining us now to discuss this new law, as well as some of the issues with law enforcement practices, is criminal defense attorney Barry Edwards. Hey, Barry. Hey, Kirk. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming. So uh, Barry and I uh, have actually worked together on a case a few years back that specifically included this issue, um, line of procedures and whether the witness identification should be allowed a trial. And then Barry also serves on the eyewitness ID task force here in Minnesota. So he has a lot of insight into the issue. Uh, Barry, first things first, how have you been doing during the pandemic and will the Chiefs be defending their title in an empty stadium this year? <laughs> Well, I'm not convinced we're going to have a full football season, but frankly, I'd like to sit on the Super Bowl victory and gloat for as long as possible. So I'm not uh, necessarily mourning that. I'm doing great. I have, um, I have to say the Hennepin and Ramsey County courts have been releasing a lot of people who otherwise would not be released because of the pandemic. There has also not been an associated spike in crime, so I'm hoping this will lead to a long-term realization that holding people in jail before trial, uh, before a conviction, was unnecessary all this time and maybe change the fact um, that they hold so many people in jail before a trial. Because with so few people in jail, I've not been going to jail much, so I'm doing great. Yeah, I haven't been to the jail in a while, and so I'm 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 actually been pretty happy that they've been letting people out. So, um, well, let's get back to the ID issue. So, here there's kind of two ID procedures that we just generally talk about in the defense world. One is called a show up identification, and then the other one is a, a lineup identification. Can you kind of explain the difference a little bit? Well, as you know, the case that we had together, which goes back a while, but if I remember correctly, the case that we had together was what's called was what's called a show-up ID case. In cases like that, the police put somebody, well, sometimes they put someone in a squad car, sometimes like the case that we had, um, they put somebody in our case, they sat him on the curb. Uh, in either case, the person's clearly apprehended. Arguably, that person's in custody. Often, they're in handcuffs. They look like the perp. And they show the alleged victim or the alleged witness that person. Here, look in the back of my squad car. Here's the guy we arrested. Or here, look at this guy I'm shining my spotlight on who's sitting on the curb. Does this look like the guy who arrested you? And leaving aside the fact that, as you've already said, eyewitness identification is extremely unreliable. Um, it gets more unreliable when the procedures that the police use 
are particularly suggestive. And people trust police, people respect police, people think that police are good at what they do. And so when the cops basically say, here's the guy we think did it, can you confirm that? Most people say, oh yeah, that's him. Um, they're not lying. They are convinced by the authority of the police and the professionalism of the police. Uh, it reinforces their predisposition to believe, yep, they got the bad guy. So that's the, um, the show up. Lineups break up, break down into two different types of lineups. There's live body lineups where they have people uh, behind a one-way mirror usually, um, and they ask the person, the witness or the victim, um, which of these people was it who did the bad act? Um, the other is a photo lineup that's much more common where they get mugshots and they show the person usually half a dozen mugshots. Um, and that is a, either of those is a lineup. Okay. Um, so one of the things that you said was the overly suggestive. And I know in cases I've had, um, sometimes when people, you know, they, they say, well, it was a black male in his 20s. Okay, well, that's a pretty broad you know, thing. There's not a lot of details into it. So when they do overly suggestive, if they take a lineup and say there's one black man in his 20s and then two black women, men in their 50s and three white guys, that's overly suggestive because the one individual is um, the only one that matches what their description is. And I think that when they do the, the show up, that's more the, the person, it's kind of while the incident just ended. It's not, whereas the, in the police station or the photo lineup, that's usually a day or two later. It's not actually within minutes or hours after the fact. Right. So many times, you know, at night where a lot of times crimes committed at night, it's dark out. Um, and yeah, there's cops everywhere and they say, Hey, here's the guy he's in handcuffs. So the show ops in, in Minnesota under Minnesota law, if I recall correctly, are almost um, assumed to be overly or to, to be suggestive. And so if I recall correctly, there's kind of a two part test that the courts will use. One is if it's a suggestion, if it is, then under the totality of the circumstances, was it reliable enough to allow it to be introduced as evidence? And do you, um, what are some of those tests or some of those factors that courts will look at to see if they are, you know, you know if it was overall reliable? I don't know the answer to that. It's been a while since I litigated this specifically on a show up. I'd have to look that up to get and get back to you. Okay. Well, lucky for you, I happen to have them right here. So the first one, um, and there's five of them, and I think they, some of them kind of run together. But number the, the the main three are kind of what did what what opportunity did the suspect have to view the individual? What was their degree of attention? And what was their accuracy in the description? And kind of from what you were saying, and a lot of times these happen, people are under stress. They're in a stressful situation because they've just witnessed a crime either happen or they're potentially the victim of a crime. So a lot of times they don't have a lot of details. And um, what is your kind of thought on, on that? I mean, I think that's part of the reason why a lot of these aren't considered reliable. Well, there's also... This is likely to come up in a uh, pre-trial situation, either a probable cause hearing or what in Minnesota we call a Rasmussen hearing, 
where we're challenging whether there's probable cause, whether there's uh, whether the where the identification is admissible or should be allowed. And in those cases, there's not a jury. You're arguing in front of a judge, and a judge is predisposed generally, if there's going to be a jury trial, to let stuff in and let the jury sort out um, how reliable it is. My most recent case, I think, involving a show-up ID, um, it was laughable because the witness was on the witness stand, and we were sh I showed the video of the show-up ID because this was a jurisdiction where the cops wore body cameras, body cams, and the witness had told the police that the perpetrator was wearing a white shirt. And we saw her get into the squad car where the show up ID was done. And she was wearing a yellow shirt with brownish uh, piping. Um, and then she said, well, yeah, that, that's, that's good enough. It's close. To, yeah, that's what I saw. That's what I meant. And the judge decided that was close enough. Um, her weight and height were wrong, but she said, well, I was, so there's a lot of fudging that's available there, especially if it's in front of a judge who's going to decide to let a jury make the ultimate decision. Um, I won that case ultimately. Um, among other things, um, the cop had very suggestively said, we got her or we got the girl or something like that, which led the person to think that she was just confirming what the police already knew. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's, that happens a lot where officers are trying to, you know, they, they have apprehended someone, they have a suspicion that this is the individual and they're trying to get the result they're looking for by suggesting certain things like, Oh, are you sure this isn't the person take another look. And then they, they put maybe the one that they're looking for first in the, in the packet. So they see them first. And then that's where the witness might, might kind of twist their, you know, twist their arm a little bit to say, no, no, I think that's the person. Um, and that's why I think what started, you're making a podcast on this subject, the new law specifically, I, I think, the new law specifically says that these lineups where their photo live or show ups need to be double blind, meaning that the person showing the witness, the alleged perpetrator, doesn't know which one it is. You can't do that with a show up easily. I guess you could maybe do it. But with lineups, the person showing the person doesn't know which one is a suspect. So they can't unintentionally leave that picture open longer or ask the person, well, you're sure, as you said, are you sure it's not number three? Um, which would help a lot. Yeah, I agree. So there's the four four reforms or four, for the four keys they're talking about for implementing. And the first one is that double blind um, administration. And I agree. I think that these are really more um, applicable to photos or um, stand up lineups, not show ups, because I don't think they could really do it that way. But the double blind is obviously is, is one thing. The second one is that um, they're supposed to inform the witness your or the perpetrator may or may not be included in this set of people. Okay. Right. And, and, and so that takes pressure, I think, off of the witness, because if they're told, tell us who you think it is, and there's six people up there, they're going to pick somebody. It's hard for them to say, nope, that's none of them. But if they know there might not be someone in there, they might say, mm, I'm not, I'm not so sure. 
So that's another one. The other one, or the third one is that they're um, selecting non-suspect fillers. And I think that that's where there's, they want to make sure that they have other individuals that actually mat match what the suspect's um, identification is. So that they're not trying to be overly suggestive and, and point out one suspect and have different different characteristics so that one sticks out more than the other. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I've got a case now which has a funny photo ID situation. Um, the victim witness described the perpetrator as a five foot six Iranian. She said he was about five foot six and looked Iranian. Um, and the photo lineup, which included my client, uh, had no people who, well, you couldn't see the height, um, but it was all African-American men, no one looking Middle Eastern or Iranian, whatever that means. Um, she picked out uh, the suspect correctly. He's six foot one. Again, it was a photo lineup, so it's just heads and shoulders. Um, but I'm going to argue when I try to get this identification thrown out, that there was no one in the photo lineup who looked like her description. It was all black men. Um, also in this case, my, the alleged attacker, my client, has big hair, um, a lot of hair. And he was the only one in the photo lineup who had a lot of hair. Everyone was a black man that, and about the right age, so it wasn't suggestive in that respect. But he was the only one whose hair stood out. Mm -hmm. So she may have made an identification based on that. One wonders if there had been, you know, a young Don King in the picture, if she would have picked him. Right. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, the suspicion, it could be, you know, black, whatever. But if they say, well, he had a big afro or was bald or vice versa, mm -hmm. and one person's bald, everybody else has a big afro, well, take a guess who they're, you know, who they're going to guess. Mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. suggestive. And then there's the one other and final one is documenting the eyewitnesses level of confidence right after the ID. I think that's a still a difficult one to to do because, well, I'm 100%, I'm 75%. They don't really know how to do that because most people haven't done that before. Yeah, and that's one of the subjects on which there is a ton of research data um, done by sociologists and psychologists, PhD sociologists and psychologists. And the relationship between certainty between articulated certainty, I'm really sure, and actual knowledge is there is no relationship. It's not direct, it's not inverse, it's just a random association, a random relationship. Um, there was a case that led to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals um, uh, ordering that a study be done that was published in Temple Law Review I'm trying to quickly scan through this document and find it. Um, but the woman who was the victim of a sexual assault um, correctly identified the suspect in a photo lineup, and she was, quote, 110% sure. And that man was convicted and spent 10 years in prison. Just by chance, the actual perpetrator as identified later by DNA, was in the photo lineup as a filler because he happened to be in the jail at that time on something unrelated. So she had the suspect 
who had been arrested and the actual perpetrator. And she picked out the suspect who is not the person who did it and was 110%, even looking right past the person who actually attacked her, which I think speaks to a whole lot of the issues of certainty um, and how unreliable certainty is. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a textbook example of why these identifi identification procedures are just not overly reliable. And it's funny how many cases I've seen where a, a, a large part of the state's case, that is what that's what they bank on. This witness says 100% that's them, and that's really what all they have. And unfortunately, a lot of people have gone to prison for a long amount of time for that. And maybe you, I don't remember if you remember the Netflix series, uh, Making a Murderer, that Steve Avery guy. When he initially was arrested, that first case, that's, that's what he was arrested and charged with, was attempted murder and rape. And it was based mainly on um, misidentification. And then 18 years later, DNA exonerated him. So this does actually happen quite frequently. And with DNA, a lot more, a lot more of this is being cleared up. But there still are a lot of cases where they don't have any sort of DNA or physical evidence. And, and that's really all prosecutors have. Well, or they have it and they won't let... Um the prosecutor won't let it be tested. So there's lots of cases right now, including one involving uh, Kamala Harris, um, where a guy is sitting in prison. There is some reason to doubt that he is guilty of the crime. He was convicted before DNA was in wide use. There is DNA evidence, and she will not let the defense test the DNA evidence to compare it to the guy who's in prison. and. I use that example um, for obvious contemporary political reasons, but it's really common. Um, prosecutors don't have to let defense have access to DNA that's sitting in a, in a storage room somewhere in a police department, even when it may exonerate the client, when it may exonerate the defendant. Um, so even when it does exist, it may not be tested. Okay. Well, Barry, I appreciate you stepping in today. I know that you've got a court hearing coming up, so I'll let you go. But thank you so much for joining us. You gave us a lot of insight. Um, if anybody ever had any questions for you, do you have a phone number or website you'd like to pass on? Sure. My phone number is 612-310-7398. My website is my full name with middle initial, Barry S. Edwards. Uh, law.com um, www.barrysedwardslaw.com Kirk, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm glad that you're doing these podcasts. Great idea. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Barry, and have a good Memorial Day weekend. That's our podcast for today. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank Barry Edwards for joining us as well. Provided some uh, good insight on the new law regarding the identification procedures in Minnesota. Um, until next time, this is Kirk Anderson. If you ever have any legal questions, you can contact me at 952-582-2904. Or you can check out my website, kirkandersonlaw.com. Until next time, thank you very much. This is the Right to Counsel podcast. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.